who even forgives sins. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in
there's this way in which we should be scandalized by account of this story. There's so much going on here. And so today we're sort of going to walk more directly to the story. But before we do, I just want to point out one thing, um, two things. First is this scene is somewhat geared in the other Gospels, actually all of the other three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John. But the scene in Matthew, Mark, and John comes at the end of Jesus' life. And he's anointed for his death and burial is sort of the way it comes out. And the scene is different in another way, in that in, that in John it takes place at Lazarus' house, um, and in the other two Gospels it takes place at a guy named Simon as well, but he's a leper, which would make him not a Pharisee. And the, the goal of those scenes is two, is one, the disciples project to the ointment being used. There's, there's no reference to the cost of the ointment in the one that we just heard today. Uh, we know it's valuable, but there's no reference to how much it was. And that it's the disciples who reject, not the Pharisees. Um, I, with temple cleansing, think that there is one story that appears in all the Gospels, but in John at the beginning. But it's placed in, in context to mean something particular. Um, this one, I actually think there's two stories at least of Jesus being anointed. Because this one is so much different than the other one. Different house, different town, different moment of life. Probably in Galilee, nowhere near Jerusalem. Um, uh, the details that could be similar are drastically different. So it almost seems, and the point, moving from being about his death and coming uh, for that, uh, is actually about love and forgiveness. So it changes in that way, too. It's, it's a giant shift. And what it was when David and I was dividing this up, I, I saw this and I was like, well, I don't want to preach on that because that's all about the cross and resurrection. I don't know why Luke moved it up. And then... I studied it this week, and I was like, wait, it has nothing to do with that. that is, it has everything to do with my perception of that. And I think one of the reasons why we try to walk with these Gospels individualized from the New Year until Easter is so that we can begin to break down those, oh, I know this scene. This is the scene where he's anointed before his death. Next page, chapter 8 begins. Maybe I'm the only one who does that. <laughs> um, but if I were reading this in my Bible in a year plan, I'd, I'd sort of zone out and be like, yep, yeah, read this one four times before, and not notice the differences in the ways in which it is. But Luke, that was one point. The second point was Luke has this way of sort of giving word pictures and then giving images that go with it. So he'll announce things, Jesus will say things, be in conflict about things, and then Luke will pair sort of like a story that goes with it. And there's two in the previous chapter, two phrases in the previous chapter of Luke that I think are, are powerful. This One is right where the previous chapter ends, is that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. How is Christ's wisdom proved right by all her children? Read the next story. This is one of the children, this woman, who comes into that scene. Wisdom is proved right by her children. This woman is a child of the wisdom in which Jesus brings into the world. The second phrase, going back a little bit further in that chapter, um, they're talking about what John has been doing. And all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' word, acknowledged that God's way was right. Because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the legal experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Who is proving God right? 
and who is not proven not right. Luke adds this narrative detail and explains it in some sense. And this whole scene is about who is proving God right in the world and who is rejecting that. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, there's a phrase we use a lot uh, about justification. We are justified by God. But what's interesting, Luke uses this phrase, and that being proved right, I don't know what translation you all have if you're following along, but being proved right is the same sort of word as justification. It's the same, really the same. And it's like that the people are justifying God would be a way to, to interpret that. But what's interesting, and, and that seems like a lot to say, God justifies us, we don't justify God. But what God is doing is making this pattern in the world, and it's the people who line up with that that sort of prove that God is right in what he's doing. And it's the people who reject that that aren't being aligned with what this revelation is, what this growing spirit is, what this miraculous thing that it means that God is with us. And so Jesus decides to have dinner at a tax collector, or at a Pharisee's house. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's where today's story starts. First off, Jesus is finally eating with the right kind of people. He's gone to the Pharisee's house. Now, there's, there's a way of looking at this so far in the Gospel of Luke. Pharisees have seen like testing Jesus, watching Jesus to see if he's going to mess up again, trying to prove things about Jesus. Why would, Jesus, why would a Pharisee invite Jesus into his house? The text doesn't give us direct answer, and there are lots you could propose. Nicodemus, famously in John 3.16, is a Pharisee who comes to Jesus at night, so he won't be recognized, and wants to find out what he's about. Is this Pharisee an honest investigator of what Jesus is doing? Is this Pharisee inviting Jesus in so that he can test him and trap him? The Pharisees have been claimed to be, have been doing that. In, Jesus, in Luke's gospel so far. So is that what's going on? The one that I kind of like when you read what uh, Jesus says to the Pharisee about what he didn't offer him is that is the Pharisee offering Jesus in to come into his house because Jesus at this moment is an uh, itinerant preacher who's sort of traveling the countryside and his disciples are eating randomly along the way and so it's just an act of pity. Um, come into my house because you know, you're, you're a teacher too, you shouldn't spend the night on the road. Which explains why he doesn't do a lot of the nice things that he should do for him. Then the last option, which kind of interprets the scene well, is that they're invited to, the Jews would have done this at the time, but it's more a Roman and Greek phenomena, to have a symposium together. He invites them in for this meal so that they can discuss and sort of debate and move through what is going on in this moment. They're going to contend and question together. They're going to do something like that. And the Pharisee clearly thinks he's right, which is why he doesn't offer Jesus these things. And so he, Jesus takes the invitation to come into the Pharisee's house. And what happens is, is that there, uh, a woman in town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Now, so Jesus goes into the Pharisee's house, which is this pure sort of spot, and a woman who had lived a sinful life comes into the Pharisee's house. There's a couple of things to perhaps notice here. One is that these houses and these type of meals were more open than ours were, so you'd have sort of two ways of looking at this. One is the houses, if it was a bigger meal, might have been taking place in a courtyard, 
And people were welcome to sort of come in and sort of move along the periphery and, and listen and, and take it part in that way and, and get some scraps from the table, perhaps. Second is, if it's inside, the doors would still be open, and particularly the women's interests would still be open, and people would be allowed to stand back against the wall, stand behind the tables and such, and sort of listen in, and again, sort of grab a scrap. But what goes wrong almost instantly is this woman has learned to live a sinful life. Now, the Pharisee also knows this uh, and thinks that Jesus doesn't notice this. We'll talk about that in a second. But in the ancient world, if this Pharisee knows she's lived a sinful life, she must publicly be living a sinful life. So while we sometimes read these passages and we go, we're all sinners. So she's somebody who knows she's lived a sinful life. But that the Pharisee knows this means that she has some sort of public responsibility for sin. This is why often the tradition has made this uh, a prostitute. She's, uh, and, and the fact that she has money suggests maybe that she is a prostitute, that she has the ability to get this ointment. The other option is uh, that she works in a business that is shameful, married to somebody who works in, in a business that is shameful, um, but she's at least known enough as a sinner. And so this is not something that happens in our world as much, although there are people in it. Um, they're more likely people we wouldn't invite over at all, I think, often enough is the case. It's that when there are people who live these type of lives, they just sort of, they don't get dinner party invites. And, and we don't have houses like the ancient world in a culture where you're allowed to sort of go into the sides um, and sort of move on those ways. And so we just wouldn't have meats. I had a friend who worked for a ministry in San Francisco. One of their ways of working with the homeless um, and people, uh, uh, prostitutes and other people, was to just invite them in for meals, and then they would play like Candyland and then sort of send them on their way. Um, and that's what they would do regularly, is just have a meal with them, just send them out. Um, they would converse, they'd talk, they'd pray, but there was no explicit evangelism, but they would just celebrate a meal together. And it always struck me as like, you could raise up a thousand, like, well, what if this? What if they refuse to leave? What if this? And they're like, they're normally like completely thrown off, because they never get invited into anybody's house. And they're very grateful, and they receive well, and they they sort of do this. And it's like, that all makes sense of my experience, but it's still shocking to me that Christians still do that. This story should scandalize us in that way. I mean, these are people that wouldn't even be allowed into the spaces. And this is what we do, put things like extended, extended table, and I admire that, too, is that, you know, the, the Old Testament in this, this life is one in which you break down those barriers that divide uh, we serve you from a safe place rather than we commune with you together. So this woman who's notoriously a sinner in that way, I think, you know, we don't, I think we have more people like that in our lives um, than we think. Uh, my neighbor, who when I moved to, let's say Oregon, because I don't want to, anyways, uh, <laughs> Kelly and I would have him over and people would say that that was weird. It was like, literally our neighbor. And I didn't think that was crossing that many boundaries, but it, it does say that there's evidences of this in our world that if you do that type of thing, it's like that's not okay. Um, particularly if you're new to a town and somebody wants to be your friend, they'll often warn you about somebody and say don't hang out with them. Now in some places that's right because of the harm they might cause, but often it's just reputation. Um, all this to say is that this is a woman who has a reputation. And she comes there, and she stood behind Jesus at his feet. 
Now, I spent a long time trying to figure this out this weekend. How are they sitting at this table? She's behind Jesus, and she's weeping at his feet. So, in the ancient Near East, there's a way of sort of lounging at a table and sort of, but I couldn't figure out that the, the kneeling like this is one way that I think people say this might be happening at this meal. The other is sort of like sprawled out, which I won't do. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting is that she's come into the party and she's behind Jesus. She doesn't interrupt the meal. She doesn't come in. She doesn't um, uh, sort of throw. She's behind him and she's weeping at his feet. And as she weeps, uh, she begins to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wipes them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Um, I looked up images for this this week, and all of them uh, scandalized me. This is the one, you can see the woman at the bottom left, sort of uh, weeping and washing his feet with her hair. Um, this one, uh, her hair is, is sort of pulled out um, this one, black and white. Um, this one, I, I, the thing I like about this one is it, it seems to portray a little bit of what Jesus might actually have been doing. This happens, and he just is sitting there. And the Pharisee on the side goes, he is surely not a prophet. Because the prophet would know who this woman is and would not allow him to be doing this. So Jesus isn't making a scene of what she's doing. She comes in and she does this. She weeps, she washes, she undoes her hair, which at this time would have been one of the great disgraces. Um, there's plenty of what we can read in the ancient Near East of women who undo their hair in public are prostitutes, which is one of the reasons why we think she might be a prostitute. But women who undo their hair in public, it's a great shame for everyone involved. There's a way that you can read this story. It seems like her act is more intentional than this, but she's hearing Jesus, she begins to weep, doesn't have a towel, so she begins to dry his feet with her hair, and then she begins to anoint him after that with what she has. And as we read on, it seems like it becomes more intentional than that, but that is sort of um, the way that this story sort of moves. And so she's behind him. And he says, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't allow her to be doing this. Um, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. He says, tell me, teacher. And this is where this might have been like a symposium, this dialogue that's going to take place. And so Jesus begins or enters into dialogue with him again with, I have something to tell you. Now, Jesus to Simon is not a prophet. And yet Jesus is responding exactly to what Simon is thinking. There's this, it's uh, somewhat comical in the sense of that, like, oh, he's surely not a prophet. And the next thing Jesus does is show him, I know exactly what you're thinking in this story. But not only that, um, the way uh, that Luke's gospel begins, and I've often thought about this phrase, and here's a picture of where it's happening, is that uh, um, it's said of Jesus that he will expose the hearts of men. Here Jesus exposes the heart, the heart of Simon the Pharisee, and also those at the table, given their response at the end. That Jesus is one who exposes the hearts of many, and I often thought of that 
and like, well, it's becoming a Christian is exposing our hearts, this, that, and the other. But to have your heart exposed in this type of way is much different. It's more like he literally draws out of us what's in there. So Simon, he draws out of him that this person shouldn't be touching him. He's been trapped. He's been known. So Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. There's evidence to me that like, if Jesus says I have something to tell you, he'd be like, I'm doing this. He's <laughs> <laughs> going to expose something within you, probably. Um, uh, I'm going to go clean up the table. I'll be back, though. Hold on to that thought, Jesus. I'll be right back. Um, two people owed money to a certain lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he gave them for debts of both. Which of them should love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Jesus tells this story which would have been somewhat common in the time. People have leveraged their money and debt with, with people and uh, they can't pay back. Most of the people would have given up their property at this point to somebody else, their households, this, that, and the other, to try and make sure that this debt could be paid back. So this isn't an uncommon thing. One of them, uh, it, the, the common phrase is always think about a denarii as a day's wages. So one of them is 50 days off, um, and the other is 500 days off. So about almost two years and uh, 50 days, so two months is the two amounts we're dealing with here, which is a lot of money on both accounts. He's not using small amounts. We'll come back to that observation later. But John, he says, which of these will love the person who forgave the debts more? And Simon responds, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus points out to him that you have judged correctly. But then he turns towards the woman who Simon had said should not be doing this. Jesus, if he knew this, would not allow this. And you pay attention to the language because it's important. Do you see this woman? And it, this first question, I think, is important for the Christian and for us, is do you see this person? So if you're like me and occasionally go to McDonald's and Glenwood, there are people off to the side with signs, and I think, oh, homeless vagrants who just need money. Do you see this person? I'm not saying it answers the question of what you should do for those people. There's complex questions about how do we help people who are in need. But do you see them as a person? He's drunk, he's an alcoholic, he's my coworker who can't get here on time, who's this, this, that, and the other. Is that, do you see them? Is that we've learned something about Jesus so far in the Gospels, is he sees people. He doesn't see identities the same way that everybody else does. And, and one of the things that this scene is, is going to reveal for us is there's a natural way of looking at something and an unnatural way of looking at something. And Jesus is very clearly displaying that the natural way is broken. And the unnatural becomes the supernatural way of perceiving the world. Do you see this woman? No, I see a prostitute. I see a woman who has lived a sinful life. I don't see much of anything. Do you see her? I came into your house. Now in the ancient Near East, when somebody came to your house, because they would have been sitting at the table without shoes on, you would have given them something to bathe or wash their feet with. First sign of hospitality would be giving them one. Second one, if they were a great guest, would be um, doing having one of your slaves do it. And you could pick on the order of your slave, 
or household managers was one. Oh, this is a great guest. The guy who's really high on my house does it. Uh, not so great. Bob, get out of here. <laughs> no Bobs in our congregation, so don't take that as criticism of Bob. Um, the third option is that the host of the house with a great guest would do it themselves. And so what Jesus is about to say and expose to this person is that she's become the host of this meal. She's become the host of this house. He says to her, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, come greeting in that world. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her love, as her great love has shown her. But whoever has been giving little, loves little. Simon, I'm guessing, didn't see this coming out of the parable. But what Jesus has shown is that his lack of hospitality, even to Jesus himself, let alone the woman, has revealed in his heart that he is not the one who's accepting this gift that God is doing in the world. Part of what I think this story is going to tell us is he's testing him to see if he's a prophet. That's what the previous scene was about in this dialogue between God and Jesus. When in fact, he's much more than a prophet. He was a prophet. He might have done some of these things. He probably would have done most of them. But this woman has gone beyond even what you would do for a high person in that town, in that world. She's not stopped wetting my feet with her tears. She's not stopped wiping my feet with her hair. She's anointed me with oil. She's given me perfume. She has done all these things. It's this host who has sort of broken forth in this scene and revealed something else. Because of her many sins, she has been forgiven as her great love has shown. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. There's um, two ways of sort of looking at this passage. One is, and this is encapsulated in the poem on the back. I should have had Kim read it because I will not attempt it. Um, I will I will read the end. It's, it's got a lot of old English in it, and not being capable of translating old English into English, I left it as is. But this is from George Herbert. Um, and sort of the poet is asking, she should have kept her tears for herself. She should have wept over her sins. Why is she using what she should be using to clean herself to clean him? And so I'm bringing, so to bring wherewith to bring to wash, and yet in washing one, she washed whole. And in washing Jesus, she too receives, that's the last line, that she is being washed. We've talked about this before, but Jesus is one who goes with this holiness into the world that it sort of um, can't be contained. To touch him is to cleanse yourself. To be near to him is to have that radiance come into you. Your sins are forgiven because of the act in which you perform. You clearly see who I am and what I've done. 
The second way is this is a, uh, it assumes that forgiven is actually a, is one of those past tense phrases in the Greek. Her sins have already been forgiven. This might have been somebody who had seen Jesus teaching before, and that's why she came to the house. It might have been somebody who was, who was at the periphery of Jesus' ministry and circle. It might be somebody like that, but what Jesus says to her is that her sins are already forgiven. It should mess with us, because we're like, they're before the cross, but um, they're very linear people. And yet Jesus is saying this has already happened for her. Her sins are forgiven. He proclaims this to her. The other guys began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Martin Luther says of this story that the sin of the flesh was forgiven, but the sin of the spirit was rebuked. But Jesus rebukes the Pharisee and his spirit here, and Jesus forgives the sins of the flesh of this woman. And I think... The, the challenge for us in this passage is are we ones who justify God by this revelation of being in the world? God is setting things to right. God is offering forgiveness to us. The reason why I had Brian read um, the Lord's Prayer from Luke before the, before the sermon is it's in Luke's Gospel it says uh, uh, forgive us our, our, our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Something like that. But the actual Greek phrase would be let us forgive those who are in debt to us. We've smoothed it off in our English language. It really means that those who are indebted to us. And sin in this category is a great debt. What the Pharisee is missing and this challenge for us to be those who prove God right is Neither one of the people could pay the owner back. You owe 50 days wages. You owe 500 days wages. You owe 1,000 days wages. When the parable says they had no way to pay him back, the act of forgiveness is a pure act of forgiveness all the way. Who should love more? Of what God is doing in the world. Both had no way to get freedom from what they were stuck with. The debt, which is the debt of sin, was unable to be paid back by either. And so it is for us to be people like this woman who justify what God is doing in the world by receiving by bringing forth ourselves. Despite the great shame it might be to us, as it was to this woman at first before Jesus changes the story, it's for us to know that God has freed us. We may owe much, we may owe little, but it's the God in Jesus Christ who takes those things and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go. God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
Can we be those who can see clearly what you're doing and working? May that cause us to just invite you in. Become hosts in our own ways. To wash your feet with our tears. wipe with our hair with sadness and tears, use our bodies, touch, and to anoint with what is precious to us. What you are doing in the world, proclaim you release the captives, healing brokenness and sickness, casting out demons and destroying the process by which you forgive, the process by which you heal, or the process by which you bring us back into right relationship with us. So we may, so may we show your wisdom right by being your children here this morning. We ask all this in the holy name.